Good morning, church. Thank you, Deborah. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn again, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse number 14. Earlier in our study in chapter 3, Jesus has confronted Nicodemus with the momentous announcement that even he must be born again. Here is Nicodemus, although he is a respected man, a very moral man, a religious man, but he's still lost. Jesus is still now in verse 14 talking to Nicodemus. He's responding to the question that Nicodemus asked in verse number 9. Verse number 9, he said, how can these things be? What Nicodemus really wants to know is, how does this new birth that you've talked about, how does this new birth happen? And so the Lord answers with an illustration that Nicodemus will no doubt never forget. Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus by telling him three things about salvation. First of all, we see a picture of salvation in verses 14 and 15. Jesus uses an event from Israel's past to illustrate his teaching. He says, and so Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There are two must in John chapter 3. If you look back at verse number 7, you see that Jesus says, you must be born again. And now, here in verse number 14, he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. These two must go together. John is using this phrase of Jesus being lifted up on the cross of Calvary. He does so three other times in his gospel account. In John chapter 8, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, so I speak these things. In John chapter, 20, uh, John chapter 12 and verse 32, he says, and, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then in John chapter 12, verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ must remain forever. How can you say then that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? All of those voices and all of those verses point to one thing, and that is the cross was absolutely necessary to atone for man's sin. Now, what is Jesus talking about here with this historical illustration? Well, the story is found in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse number 4. It says that they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the souls of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there is no food and no water, and our souls loathe this worthless bread. They're talking about manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said unto Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone that is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. In this passage, the people of Israel are journeying through the wilderness. They've recently traveled from Mount Hor, area near the Red Sea, to the borders of Edom, near where Petra is located. It is without a doubt some of the most inhospitable territory on the face of this earth. The Bible says that because of the difficulties they were facing, because of the difficulties of the journey, the people became discouraged and they began to speak against God and against the leadership of Moses. And because of their grumbling and because of their murmuring, God, in response, sends poisonous snakes into their midst and many of the people are bitten and they die. But we need to remember that this punishment that God sends among them is not for just one single incident of grumbling, but rather it is because of a track record of 40 years of grumbling and murmuring. In spite of God's gracious provision and protection, they're still murmuring and grumbling. It says in verse number 7, Then the people repented. The Lord then offered salvation through a very strange method. He commands Moses to make the image of a serpent out of bronze and to hang it from a pole. The people who were bitten and who were dying could look upon that image. And as they looked upon that, as they lifted up their eyes and they looked to the serpent in faith, they would be healed. They would be saved by an act of faith. Those who looked at the serpent were saved. It certainly goes without saying that the remedy proposed by God through Moses sounds utterly absurd. Not just absurd, however. After all, the Ten Commandments that God had given his people was one, that thou shalt not have any graven images among you, Two, we already know that Aaron and the people have gone in trouble because they made a golden calf and sought to worship it and great judgment fell upon them. And then let's just think back to the, to the origin of man's time here in the Garden of Eden. The image of a serpent. They had to remember that it was the serpent who led Eve astray in the Garden of Eden. So the people had to really kind of step back and wonder, did God really say that to Moses? Or is he just really finally flipping out? Did he really get this message from God or not? But if we begin to think about it, 
The details of that analogy are remarkable. First of all, it's a story of sin and its consequences. Nicodemus understood that it was sin that had brought the judgment of God upon the Israelites. It was a result of their sin that they were dying. Secondly, the only people who were saved were those who looked upon the bronze serpent. That is, they acknowledged that if they did not do what God said, they were going to die. It was only the dying, those who recognized and acknowledged their state, who would look upon the serpent of bronze and be saved. It was the people who were perishing because of their sin, and they knew it. And then third, we dare not overlook the importance of the look of faith. It was by faith that those who were bitten looked at the bronze serpent and lived. Moses lifted up the serpent in the camp, and all the dying Israelites, no matter who they were, if they looked upon the pole, they were saved. Didn't, know, didn't matter how horribly they had been bitten. It didn't matter how many times they had been bitten. didn't matter how long ago it had been that they had been bitten, if they were still alive. The opportunity for salvation was there. Even the, the analogy, of course, for us is that even the most miserable, the most degraded sinner in this world who looks for Christ will be saved. And I believe that's why the Lord used this image, this illustration. But we have to stop and recognize it was not enough to know that salvation was being offered. Each man had to look for himself. God's provision was only there and useful for those who accepted it. Jesus is saying that being born again comes through the simple act of dependence of a look of faith. I like that so much because he doesn't say it's a perfect faith. He doesn't say you've got to have it all in a row. You've got to have it just right and then you can be saved. No, all you have to do is recognize your plight and turn to him and you can be saved. In the same way, we need to <clears throat> believe God's promise that whoever looks to Jesus and his death as the just payment for our sins will be forgiven and granted eternal life. But we have to be careful not to fall into idolatry by taking this little cross that we wear around our necks sometimes and look at it as some kind of a magic token. About 700 years after this incident that's recorded in Numbers, King Hezekiah had to destroy that bronze image of the serpent because the Israelites had begun to worship the image. It really took some courage on the king's part. This snake had become an object of worship. In fact, it had degenerated into idolatry. Now, at the risk of offending some of you, but in a sincere desire to help, let me say that if you view a statue of Jesus on the cross as something that should be worshipped, that is idolatry. That's idolatry. 
If that's something that you pray to rather than the Jesus who saved your soul, that's idolatry. You're not believing in the risen and exalted Christ when you do so. You're practicing idolatry. Not only a picture of salvation, but secondly, the motivation for salvation, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Obviously, this is one of the best known and most beloved of all the scriptures in the Bible. And it is simply because it states the gospel so clearly for each of us. It summarizes that the Lord Jesus has been trying to teach to Nicodemus concerning the manner by which the new birth is experienced. But Jesus is not really through turning Nicodemus' world upside down yet. In verse 16, Nicodemus is told that the love of God extends to whom? The whole world. In John's writing, the word translated world here is cosmos. He is not referring to the physical world, the physical earth, the plant, the world of plants and animals. It seems to be so important to activist groups like Greenpeace and the Sierra Club. The world that he's talking about is the world of humanity. The world here includes all of humanity. Yet it does not mean that everyone's going to be saved. A person must receive what Jesus has done on the cross for him before God will give him eternal life. When John says of God that he loves the whole world, he is being intentionally provocative. The idea that the world is consumed and considering all of humanity is a new idea for Nicodemus. It's shocking. This was the idea that was almost beyond comprehension for the Jews. You don't think so? Well, let's do a little historical research. You remember Jonah? He was sent by God. He was sent to, to take a message to the Ninevites. And did he want to do that? No. Why? Did he want the Ninevites saved? No. He would just as soon they be destroyed. Not only were they Gentiles, they were vile, unloving, and unlovable Gentiles. Or we can go to the disciples of Jesus, John and James, when they didn't receive the kind of, thought, kind of welcome that they should, he thought, receive among a Samaritan village. He said, let's just call down fire from heaven, destroy this place. And we at least not forget Peter. It took a special vision from God to convince Peter that his plan for salvation included the Gentiles, not just the Jews. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. Now, you'll note in your outline there this morning, there's a blank that you can write your name there because it's for you. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Now, notice the word believe. Believe. It is accompanied by a little preposition in. Believe in Christ. What does it mean to believe in Christ? That is, we must trust him as the one who bore the penalty for our sins. That's a personal thing. We must each believe that he died in our place. That means you must believe that he died for you. There is no need for anyone to perish. A way has been provided by which all might be saved. But a person must acknowledge the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior. And when he does this, he has eternal life as a present possession. The last thing that we look at is the necessity of salvation. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. First of all, recognize present judgment. When God sent Jesus the first time, he did not come as a judge. He made that very clear to the man who wanted him to give a judgment between him and his brother as it's recorded in Luke chapter 12. He said to that man, man who has made me a judge or a divider over you. He didn't come as a judge the first time. He came as the savior. He will come the next time as the judge. But now he says that God didn't send him into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did not come to condemn an already condemned world. What good would that do? He didn't say that those who refuse the light will be condemned at some future date. He says they are already condemned. They're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. If you were to take a trip this morning down to Cummins Prison and you were taken on a tour of death row, you would, make, you would meet some inmates who are waiting for the sentence of death to be carried out. They're not waiting to be condemned. They're condemned already. They are already condemned men living on borrowed time. They're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. That should send a shiver up our spines if we think about it. We consider that all the people around us every day and everything that we do who do not know Jesus Christ are condemned already. They're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. They are not condemned to die by lethal injection, but they are waiting for the carrying out of the just sentence that their sin deserves. It's a sentence of judgment that people have imposed upon themselves by refusing what God has provided. Notice it requires belief. John hammers this thought in in verse 18, by using the verb three times, believes, underline it. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Believe, believe, believe. It is belief that is necessary and not something else that matters. The concept is introduced in verse 16 where we read the promise that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But what does that belief consist of? First of all, it consists of knowledge. There are certain truths that you have to know before belief can occur. True saving faith is more than an emotional experience, more than a warm, fuzzy feeling that you got in a service one day. It involves knowing certain truths about man, yourself, and God. Secondly, it involves agreement. Agreement that certain propositions are true. For example, the man or woman who says, I am a Christian, but goes on to say, but I do not believe in the divinity of Christ. I do not believe that he was born of a virgin or I do not believe that he rose from the dead cannot be a Christian. For those beliefs are necessary for saving faith. The third element of belief is commitment or trust. This means that there, you need to know some things. You need to agree about those things, but that's not enough. True salvation rests on you putting your faith and trust in what you know and accept as true. The only way to escape the condemnation is to believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, this is therefore, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As this verse so clearly states, in Christ there is no condemnation. Those who are not in Christ are already condemned. There are a great many who feel the world is on trial today. It is not. The world is lost. The world is condemned. It is judged already. You and I live in a lost world. Our position is something like a man who is in prison being told whether asked whether or not he will accept a pardon. That's the gospel. It's not telling a man he's on trial. He has already been tried. He is condemned. He is already in prison awaiting the execution. But the gospel tells him that a pardon is available. A pardon is being offered. The point is, will you accept the pardon? How wonderful, clear that is really that the gospel is there to save those who are already lost. But we should also take notice of what John says here. The two verbs translated is condemned already and has not believed. Both are perfect tense, which points to something that is permanent, a lasting state. John is not saying if you have ever had a doubt in your mind, you're lost. If that's true, all of us are lost. But you're not being honest with yourself if you never say you've never had a doubt in your mind. I have one most every Monday morning. 
permanent, lasting state. He's not talking about a person who has a passing moment of doubt, but about a person who has entered into a permanent state of disbelief. And last, there is persistent unbelief. Verse 19. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Jesus is the light who has come into the world. He was the sinless son of God. He died for the sins of all of the world, but all of the world has not accepted him. Do all men around the world love him because of what he has done? No. No, they do not. Some resent his intrusion into their lives, and they resent being revealed for what they are. They prefer their sin to having Jesus as a savior and so because of that they reject him just as the rats and cockroaches in the world and other creaking things scurry away when the light is switched on in a room even so wicked men and women flee from the presence of Christ in general the cause of unbelief is not intellectual it's moral People do not want to submit to God because they love their sin and are not willing to give them up. According to verse 20, those who love sin hate the light because the light exposes their sinfulness. When Jesus was here in the world, sinful people were made uncomfortable by his presence and by his holiness. Bono, the lead singer of the rock group U2, is purported to be a Christian. Is he really? I'm not endorsing him or his music, but he sure talks like one. I read an interview that he had recently that I found very interesting. The the journalist approached him and asked him if he agreed the most appalling things happen when people become religious. Bono replied that it depended on what religion you were talking about. And he divided all religions into two categories, karma and grace. Then he said, I'll be in big trouble if karma is going to be my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. It's pretty good theology. You know, I look at this story about Nicodemus and we ask ourselves, did Nicodemus understand what Jesus was talking about. I suspect at the time Nicodemus understood very little about what Jesus was saying. 
Although Nicodemus knew the story, knew the illustration that he used, I doubt that he made the connection with Jesus right then. But after Jesus was crucified, he had to have put it all together. For it was Nicodemus who, along with Joseph of Arimathea, claimed the Lord's body and buried him. I believe he made the step from a secret disciple to a full-fledged believer in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can depend on grace. But we also recognize it's something we have to accept for ourselves. It's not enough if we have a legacy of faith from our family. Our grandfather and grandmother were saved. Our mother and father were saved. All our siblings are saved. Not enough. We have to recognize our own sinfulness and accept what Jesus did on the cross for us. If there's anyone here this morning that has never claimed that pardon that has been offered for them, I pray that they might understand this morning, first of all, that they are a sinner. They can't save themselves. There's not any way in the world they can do enough good to make up for the bad in their lives. But that you have offered us a pardon for our sins. If we would but look to Jesus, look to him as he is lifted up on the cross, as he paid for the penalty for our sin. Help us, Lord, to understand And then, Lord, help us to accept that payment. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.